Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. You have no idea how happy I am to be able to say this in our 21st year. In our 21st year, I finally get my guy. Please welcome John Irving. John, thank you very much for being here. Welcome. Um, we have an hour for this session, which means we'll be talking for 35, 40 minutes, and then I'll open it to the, the floor. I could quite happily spend all of today talking about each one of, of John's books. So can I just cover a few big picture things before going into specific novels? Your dyslexic condition as a child made you read very slowly, and you say, mouth words. To what degree has it also affected the way that you write prose? I think the, the early learning disability, and, and at my age at that time, a learning disability wasn't even called such. Dyslexia as a word was, was never used around me. Uh, it, it was simply presumed that I was slow in school and generally slow to catch on and that I made uh, a preternatural number of mistakes uh, at everything, not just uh, verbally but uh, mathematically. And, um, but as a writer, I feel that condition of knowing that I needed to go slowly, of knowing that I, I made mistakes, has, has, has been probably the most useful uh, part of my makeup uh, as, as a writer. It was not helpful uh, to me as a student. Uh, it made me feel uh, humiliated and inferior uh, as a student. I was an inferior student. I was completely an inferior student. but. The older I got and the more I was able to concentrate on one thing uh, and becoming self-supporting as a writer, which happened only with my fourth book, enabled me to do that. Uh, I've always felt that I have a, a great capacity for going over something again and again and again. I believe that my first drafts are terrible, but that I rewrite more and better than anyone I know. And it's because I had to always rewrite everything. And it also gave me my method of composition, which is extremely slow uh, and uh, over-planning in that uh, I need to know the last sentence of a book before I begin thinking about the novel seriously. I, I write the last sentence first, and I make my way backward through the plot, and plot is everything to me, uh, until I recognize what the first chapter uh, should be, and the last thing I come to before I begin writing the book in a consecutive order is the first sentence. So that that period of time, that process from last sentence to first sentence could be a year, could be 18 months, in the case of two books longer. Um, in the case of the, the novel I just finished in first draft, only seven months. That's fast for me, from last sentence to first sentence. In 11 out of 12 novels, the last sentence has never changed. Not a word, not a piece of punctuation. But the first sentence, is always a very vulnerable one. I'm subject to changing first sentences a lot. Um, I could have told you the last sentence of the novel I'm still writing four years ago, and I could say with certainty, now that I've finished the first draft, uh, that's what the last sentence is. But the first sentence, it still could change. It is the last sentence then also the hook that brings you into the novel? 
It's the emotional hook that brings me into the novel, and I don't write novels for intellectual reasons. Uh, I intend to move you uh, emotionally or, or fail to move you emotionally, but my intentions, my reasons for writing a novel are emotional, which is another reason uh, I want to know how it ends before I spend five years writing a book. I want to know, is there something at the end of this story that really hurts? Is there something at the end of this story that has an impact uh, emotionally that, that's going to make you feel um, sad, disgusted, uh, sorry, um, uh, relieved, uh, some emotional, I need to know what that emotion is, which is why I need to know the exact sentence and my own tone of voice, because knowing what happens just isn't good enough. Okay, how do you get the tone of voice? Is that something you've composed in your, your head and you've mouthed in your mouth before you even start transcribing? I, I, I do a lot of writing out loud. I read out loud to myself. It was a way an English teacher in uh, ninth or tenth grade uh, taught me how to find my own mistakes, um, always read out loud to myself. Um, I hear everything I write out loud. I think um, uh, the sentences uh, are long um, because uh, you, can, uh, you can sustain a longer sentence when you go very slowly and go over it many, many times. Um, it isn't just my love of the 19th century novel that makes me enamored of semicolons. I, I like semicolons because I rarely meet a sentence in which I am quickly through. Um, my novels are long because the passage of time is generally uh, as important as any major minor character in them. And I don't know how you write a short novel if 50 years are going to pass. And if one of the most important features of that novel is what is the effect of the passage of time on the major characters in that story. Uh, there's some notable exceptions to that. Flaubert is a simple heart, but he was writing about a very simple character in that case, and it's a one-character novella. Um, but most novels where a significant uh, amount of time passes perforce need to be long. The size of your novels are, as you say, pulling back to the 19th century. They are maximalist, fully engaged with a, with a whole swathe of history and, and a big society. They're peopled very fully with characters. You started writing at the point at which a far sparer, shorter American fiction was dominant. What's your... How have you reacted against that, and, and how did you find the Dickensian model which you've pursued? Well, Dickens's Great Expectations was the first novel... Uh, I read that made me want to be a writer. Uh, I was almost uh, 15 uh, when I read that book, and I reread it immediately. And uh, remember that I was 15 when I finished it the second time. Um, and uh, I'd read a lot of um, other novels that hadn't made me want to be a writer at all. Uh, and if um, I had been given uh, a steady diet of modern or postmodern novels, um, the chances are good I would have thought of something else to do. Um, I, I loved the novels of the 19th century. Among my fellow Americans, my favorite writers are Herman Melville and Nathaniel Hawthorne, who I don't look upon as American. I look on them as New Englanders. And I look upon myself as a New Englander. Um, for, for those of us in Old England, what does New England mean in that context? Well, generally, it means that we think the rest of the country is stupid. <laughs> um, and it strikes me that often we're right about that. <laughs> um, we're never much in step or in touch with what the rest of the country is doing or not to make too fine a point of it, how the rest of the country is voting. Um, uh, New Englanders are, um, 
uh, either perceive themselves as different or we are. Um, we, we, we feel the rest of the country has um, kind of um, uh, sold itself to um, advertising and they don't really understand that uh, the way we do, that we are a part of the country where industry has left us. Uh, the farms don't work anymore. We support ourselves by tourism, and we hate tourists. <laughs> so, if you, if you, there's a there's a natural kind of of stubbornness and and um, uh, feeling of of um, absolute victimhood about that. That you know, it's different. It's just different. You use New England as a small country, right? And one of the things that New England feels is wrong about the rest of the country is how big it is. <laughs> the way you talk is very much the way you write, in that you're wrapping something really quite hard and actually really tragic in a comic vest. And I'm just slightly fascinated by the way in which, in many of your books, you can be playful, you can make people laugh, and once you've got their hearts and hooked that emotional response from the reader, you tend to wring them out and savage them. Yes. <laughs> you have a problem with that? No, I love it. <laughs> but do you feel yourself... Do you feel yourself tragically inclined? Because I'm wondering how much of the comedy, wonderful as it is, is... Play. Yeah, it's You're quite bleak, John. Yeah, it's, it's, the comedy is play, but it seems to me that it, um, uh, it is a way of um, uh, misleading the reader in a, in a purposeful way. Um, I believe in plot. I believe... Um, as E.M. Forster said, um, yes, oh dear, yes. Uh, uh, the novel um, uh, tells a story. Uh, and I know what I'm going to do before I begin. The story pre-exists my writing the first chapter. It's as if it already happened uh, to these characters. And my responsibility is to the language and uh, to the proper order of events uh, and that includes allowing the reader to anticipate what he or she thinks is going to happen and allowing them to be right some of the time, but more important, misleading them as well, um, making them think, uh, see, this is lighthearted going, this is fun, um, everything's going to be okay, but it's not going to be okay. Um, you, you want your readers to like and sympathize with some characters, uh, to detest um, other characters, uh, and, and then you, you, you want them to be a little wrong. But it's, it is a manipulation. Um, I've heard many of my fellow contemporary writers say words to this effect, that um, not only is, is plot uh, old-fashioned or um, uh, useless um, uh, to fiction writers today, um, but um, the very idea of um, omniscient uh, narration um, is um, an insult um, intellectually to um, uh, how terrible the last century and the century we live in is, that the very idea of a, of a, of a writer presuming that there is such a thing um, uh, as an omniscient uh, third-person narrator um, is old-fashioned. You know, it was um, uh, it, it, it was okay for um, uh, Jane Austen because she didn't know any better. But but once people have seen what happened in the uh, late 20th uh, and early 21st century, we we now know that no one can be that much of an authority um, to write a novel in a third-person omniscient voice, for example. Um, 
unreliable narration is the best we can do. Well, you know, I don't know why novelists or playwrights or film directors um, uh, have to assume uh, the guilt and indecisiveness uh, of the politics of the last century and a half. I don't. I, it wasn't my business. You know, I, I feel that uh, my job as a storyteller is to be 100% in control of the story. Uh, and if, um, if someone says to me, well, intellectually, no one is 100% in control of anything we know, uh, that doesn't, in my view, that doesn't apply uh, to um, tell it, uh, it doesn't apply to uh, the theater, it doesn't apply to the novel. Um, uh, fiction is called fiction for uh, a, a reason. It's, it has to be better made, better constructed, and more credible than real life. Um, there's, there's very little that's credible about real life. If I were in the business of political predictions, I'm wrong every time. I said when Ronald Reagan was president that the United States couldn't conceivably have a worse or more stupid president than Ronald Reagan. I was wrong. Uh, I, I said at the time of the Vietnam War that my country could never sincerely be as divided or find itself again as divided as it was in the period of the Vietnam War. I was wrong. So much for reality. Reality isn't my business. But being an authority about how I tell a story, that's my job. And, and, and so I, I don't subscribe to um, uh, unreliable narration. Since Who you've, needs it? Since you've taken us there twice, are you optimistic now about the possibility of Barack Obama being elected? Well, even a few months ago, I would have found it dismaying to think that any Republican candidate could give any Democratic candidate a run for the presidency in November. I would have thought that giving, given the record of George W. Bush, um, given how he has allowed my country's reputation to deteriorate to a degree that it won't come back in my lifetime, uh, no matter how good the results of this November's uh, election may be. Uh, the reputation that that man has squandered will uh, persist for the rest of my life. Um, uh, I. It is dismaying to see uh, how close an election uh, it now appears that this will be. Um, and one can only say that um, there is a, a sizable percent of the American public who just truly don't know what's going on. Uh, they're not well educated, they're not well informed. Um, their only news is, is television, which is worse than lamentable, uh, and they wouldn't or couldn't express to you the difference between a secular uh, tyranny uh, and a theocracy, for example. Um, an important distinction if you want to recognize that uh, the war against Iraq was not a furtherance of the war against terror, so-called, but a distraction from it. Um, uh, as John Kerry said, um, and he was discredited, Kerry, for being a hero twice, um, uh, in combat, in the war in Vietnam, uh, and uh, as an able and eloquent uh, protester against that war when he came home. Uh, and his patriotism was called into question. Well, we all know what your countrymen said about uh, patriotism as the um, last refuge for, for a scoundrel. 
but it's also the last refuge for a moron. And this president is counting and has always counted with extreme cynicism and arrogance on simply how stupid um, 48 to 51% of um, the voting American public are. You know, you can't hear a politician, even the ones I like, say the American people uh, without sounding positive about them. It, I don't say the American people and sound positive about them. This novel I'm finishing now is the second of 12 novels in which a major minor character will leave his country and go to live in another one. Um, and it's hard for me to write that. Um, and it's, it's even harder for me to think that I might do that. But I might. That's a work in progress. I might. I'm not kidding. I might. And everyone who knows me knows that. There's um, an extraordinary degree to which, although you are often thought of as a master storyteller, as a great entertainer, it seems to me that something that's often not said about you is that several of your novels carry very heavy political punches. And when you're saying that that's not on your mission, it occurs to me that nobody who reads The Cider House Rules will not have to think about the issues that it raises, specifically your stance on abortion. Nobody who reads Prayer for Owen Meany will think about war in, not rethink their thinking about war. In the novel that you're working on now, has your deeply held anxiety about what's happened to your country uh, been reflected more directly than having its protagonist leaving it? I'm kind of alluding to the Tom Wolfe thing. You know, when he said, you guys, you three big guys, Mailer, um, Updike, and you, were not, he ridiculously said, you were not addressing the big American issues. It seems to me you clearly were, but I'm just interested to know, given how political you are, you, you've three times alluded to big American political issues here. Are you now feeling yourself to need to engage more? in your work? No, I don't feel a need to engage more. Um, you're right to single out uh, A Prayer for Owen Meany and The Cider House Rules as, as the only two of my 11 published novels that I would call political, but they are political novels. The Cider House Rules is maybe more of a didactic or a polemical novel than it is a political one. Owen Meany is, is decidedly a, a political uh, novel about the uh, Vietnam years. Um, this one, I'm still rewriting it. It's, it's too soon to say. It will be a political novel and seen as a political novel, but it's, it, its politics are not as specific as abortion politics or as um, abortion politics or the history of abortion politics in the U.S. Uh, I'm such a slow processor, to go back to your first question, not only uh, uh, a slow editor of my own language, but what I mean by uh, a processor is you've got to keep in mind that I wrote my Vietnam novel, Owen Meany, 20 years after the war in Vietnam. I needed to wait that long to know what still made me angry about that time. Uh, because long after the fact, what you should be writing about is what still makes you angry, what you don't get over, what you can't get over. And uh, a number of my fellow writers who wrote Vietnam novels, uh, they wrote them right out of the box. And I understand that instinct. Um, but I'm not that confident uh, emotionally. I am such an emotional writer and write solely for emotional reasons that I have to be very careful that I've given myself some necessary detachment from how many things I feel about 
a period of time or an episode in the life of my country or a social dilemma. Um, I have to give it a lot of time. In the case of the Cider House Rules, I purposely set that novel back in the 1930s and 40s because I wanted to detach my story from the political hysteria of the abortion debate today. I said, let's go back to when that procedure was illegal and generally unsafe. And let's create a story in which everything that happens only could and would happen at a time when that procedure was denied. You make it legal, you make it safe, there is no Cider House Rules. There's no story. And it was my way of saying, you think you want to go back there? Here's what you go back to. Here's what you get if you go back there. Um, but it was, it was a deliberate choice on my part to make that an historical novel. I wrote my most autobiographical novel, the novel that is most closely based on my childhood and adolescence and myself in my young 20s. Um, uh, that was my 11th novel, not my first, second, or third novel. I was in my 60s when I was writing about what happened to me as an 11-year-old, right? Well, I, I think it's most writers' experiences. If you're going to write about uh, the traumas or the angers of your childhood and adolescence, we're going to read about those things in your first, second, or third book. But I, I, just, I just need to give myself... Uh, I, I was a very angry kid, a really angry teenager, a very angry 20, 30-year-old young man. And uh, I'm better when I've been angry about something for 20 years. And I, <laughs> and I know that, okay, now these are the reasons you really should still be angry about that, and those other reasons are just the fact that you are 18, 19, 20, and get over it. I want to get back to the side house rules in a second, but just staying for a second until I find you. Um, you got angry for 50-odd years about what happened to you as, as a child, an 11-year-old child. And at the same time as revisiting that child abuse, as it would now be understood and then probably wasn't, um, you, in a sense, discovered your father and another whole family or siblings that you had not previously known. Yes. It seems almost bizarrely novelistic, coincidental, that those two things should have come together, you writing the book and that happening at the same time. Did it feel like a predestined thing while you, whilst you examined your life? Yes, it, it did feel uh, like a predetermined event. It, it, but you have to realize that uh, for someone who writes the last sentence of a novel first, um, it, it predestination doesn't seem all that strange to me. <laughs> I mean, um, predestination is kind of a normal way of doing business, right? Uh, so... Um, uh, some people might say, well, that's pretty fatalistic, but uh, that's, that's my method. That's how I work. So to tell you the truth, although there's no logical reason for thinking so, I always believed that one day my father would present himself. I always believed because I refused to believe that he didn't want to meet me or know me or that he didn't want me to know him. I just, as a child, I said, no, he, he must really want to know me, but uh, something's keeping him from it. He's in jail, or he's crazy, or as it turned out, he was a little. Um, but uh, it was a gift to my imagination that my mother and no one in my family would tell me who he was, because when you're denied that kind of information as a kid, um, you invent him. I was inventing him all the time. I, I could think of a hundred reasons why he hadn't quite yet come and introduced himself. And when I then learned later that 
He used to come to see me wrestle. And then someone said, well, no, maybe he didn't. Uh, and then later someone said, well, yes, he did at least twice. Well, I then naturally believed that he was reading what I was writing. There's no evidence that he did or that he didn't. We don't know, right? But I actually put things in my books that he would know uh, I got from him. I knew he would know um, as a way of saying, hello, wake up. Tell me. But vanity is, is attendant to every creative act. And the one thing I never imagined, which was really stupid, was that this man would have had other families, other children. Well, of course he would have. You know, he got my mother pregnant when he was 21. What was he going to do? Do nothing for the rest of his life? So it wasn't my father who finally came and said, hello, I'm your father. It was a young man who looked remarkably like my eldest son, they're very close to the same age, who said, hello, I, I'm your brother. And of course that was the way it was going to happen. But uh, I thought, well, not only does my father think of me all the time, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't dare have other children. <laughs> and that was, just, that was just totally stupid. So the, there's a part of your thinking about something that happens to you as a child that continues to be childish. There is a, there is a part of something that if you fail to process it as a child, if it shakes you up sincerely enough as a kid or as an adolescent, you will continue to behave as a kid or an adolescent does about that subject. You will retain the kind of tantrum of, of, of a childhood about that certain subject. Just stretch your arm out again, like that. This, um, can, you, can you close up? Or is there a camera that can close up on, on this guy's forearm here? No, this side of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is this? It's a tattoo. Yeah, I can see it's a tattoo. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's a stain from a water glass. <laughs> You know, it just never went away. No, it's, um, it's the starting circle on a wrestling mat. Yeah. And, well, and I, I competed as a wrestler for 20 years, and I coached the sport until I was 47, so that it's a very familiar uh, marker to me. In The Imaginary Girlfriend, you talk about your parallel lives. And this was the book, first and maybe only book, that your wrestling friends, you, the first book you gave them and said, these are the bits you should read, you'll really like them. And indeed, they did. Um, is, is it too much to marry wrestling and the physical struggle? That wonderful thing you say about the obligation of a wrestler if you lift your opponent from the mat to return them to the mat. The, the, the struggle of it seems to a casual observer to be a wonderful metaphor for the way in which you write. It is very physical, it's grappling. You say it's a, you, you are rewriting and, and exhausting any possibility of error or failure. Is that too much, or do you just want to keep them totally parallel and separate? No, it's not too much. Um, but... Some things, even for someone who believes as, as, as deeply as I do in plot, uh, some things truly are coincidental. Um, uh, not in my novels, maybe, but in, in real life, I, I, I grant you that coincidences happen. Um, if I'd grown up in a city, my mother might have taken me to a boxing gym, and boxing would have become an outlet for what an angry kid I was. Uh, boxing would have become the kind of, it could have been another martial art sport. It could have, is easily. So I think that uh, one can make too much of the wrestling. It was just that where I lived, where I was growing up, uh, there happened to be uh, a superb wrestling program and a particularly uh, renowned uh, wrestling coach. And it, 
it struck my mother wisely, as it turned out, that that was the proper outlet for me. So it, it could have been some other um, but, but even if it was a contact sport. Yeah, it was always going to be a martial sport and it was always going to be a solo sport. Yes, that, that was essential. But uh, for something I got into for the wrong reasons, uh, because I was angry and it was an outlet for that, um, I did it long enough at least to recognize that in the case of anything you do well, uh, you don't do it angrily. You, you make a study of it. Uh, you do it with the, the greatest amount of patience. Uh, you make a discipline of it. And everything you do well, whether you're memorizing lines, um, whether you're writing, whether you're doing a sport, um, requires an enormous amount of repetition. And I think what I got most that was of use to my writing uh, from 20 years of competing as a wrestler was how much sheer repetition goes into the preparation for a six or a seven minute match. Uh, how many times you drill a, a single leg or a double leg or an inside arm drag or an underhook trip. How many times you do it to not a sparring partner but a willing workout partner and then he does it to you and then you do it to him and then he does it to you and there's 45 minutes or an hour of that kind of repetition before you even get to go head to head before you even really are making contact, you are just dancing. You are just going through these motions. Well, come on. That's a lot like rewriting. That's a lot like learning your lines as an actor. That's a lot like knowing your mark on stage so that you don't even have to see the duct tape anymore. You know where it is, right? You know, you know if somebody's hit you with their right hand in your left ear a hundred times, you know that if he's close enough to make contact with your ear, that you can also get his left foot. So when you feel that hand on your ear, you're happy. Because that means you don't even have to look. You know where his left foot is. He couldn't have a hold of your ear if his left foot wasn't completely within your reach. And so the hand on your ear is a way of saying, thanks very much, I got your left foot. You see? Now, that's boring. For most people, that's boring. Not the way just you said I think I can no, be a Just the way it is boring. How many times do most people have the capacity to reread and rewrite the same sentence, the same paragraph, the same chapter? You know, because you can't get tired of that. If, if, if you think you love and are passionate about the result, you, you've got to like the boring part. And the boring part is redoing it. Because it's not a natural instinct to go for somebody's left foot when he drills you in, in your right ear, um, your, your left ear. It's, it, it, that's, that's a learned instinct, right? You learn that. You, it's not natural. If, if not, I, I would make a bet, Peter, that if I took a swing right now at you, I'd run. You would not. You would not go at my opposite foot. But I could teach you how to do that. <laughs> I could teach you. That that's what you should do. Well, you see, for most people, if if they recognize themselves taking what was a semicolon and making it a parent's, taking what was a parent's and making it a semicolon, removing the and, removing the but, and then six months later. You put the parents back and take the semicolon out. How much fun is that? Right? Wow. Does that take your breath away? But if it doesn't, find something else to do. Right? If it doesn't, get another line of work. Because you have to love that. You have to love the repetition. It's, it's, it's a game. Can I, can I ask you two more writer's questions? One's about the Cider House Rules, which some people will come to as a movie for which you won an Oscar for the screenplay. This required the most phenomenal act of compression, because it's quite a long book, and it travels, even in your standards, a fair old chunk of time, and you just brought it right down. 
Did you enjoy that act of compression? Did it free you as a writer? Because I've, I've heard from a friend of mine that you wrote Son of a Circus first as a screenplay and then expanded it into the great big novel that it is. That's true. Um, and uh, that film uh, still isn't made. Um, it is still uh, not in production. I used to think that, you know, The Cider House Rules was the screenplay of mine that would definitely take the longest time to be made as a film. It took 13 years. Um, but uh, Son of the Circus is, is um, uh, creeping ahead of it um, in terms of its difficulty to get made. That's okay. Um, it, it'll happen or it won't. But... Um, Once again, I said something before about the, the passage of time being as important as a, a, a character, a, a, at least a major minor character, if not a major character, in most of my novels, the fourth hand accepted. Um, the most difficult truncation, the most difficult edit from the novel of the Cider House Rules to the screenplay and the film of the Cider House Rules was not some fairly powerful major-minor characters and their storylines that I had to lose was not uh, a compression of, of the plot, um, a loss of episode or incident. The, the hard part was that that novel takes place over a 15-year period of time. And I believe that passage of time is something that novels do exceedingly well. You never lose sight of who a character is. If you meet that character as a child <clears throat> and you later see that character as uh, an older woman or an older man, they're the same character. But try getting away with that on stage. Try getting away with that in a film when you're changing three or four actors uh, and each one is supposed to be a, an older version of um, uh, the infant or the young child you began with. It's very hard on the audience emotionally. And, and so I believed right at the beginning that uh, the Cider House Rules, the film, had to happen in a one-year, 18-month, two-year period of time max, um, uh, accepting the opening credits and what sort of shenanigans with babies turning into young men and um, Michael Caine aging 40 years, those kinds of things will work over opening credits and you can get them out of the way. But from the moment the film began, I wanted Homer Wells to be as old as he would be for the duration of the story. That was huge. And, and that was a real loss to me. And I suffered it for the first couple of drafts of that screenplay. And for the work I did with the first three directors attached to that project, um, the first one died, uh, a young man, Philip Borsos. He died of leukemia at 41. Um, and I thought the film, or any chance of getting it made, had died with him. Uh, the next two I fired, and they were of no help to me at all. Um, and then Lasse Hallström um, uh, came into the project, and Lasse said, well, when you adapt something from a novel this long that has covered so much time, you have to look at what you might gain by compressing that story instead of look at what you've lost. Um, and I hadn't thought of it that way. And he said, for example, if Homer comes back to the orphanage uh, after uh, a hiatus of only 18 months or two years, the same unadopted orphans can be there. And you can see Homer Wells come back to the orphanage from their point of view in their eyes. And that was emotionally better than what I was able to do in the novel when all the kids had gone. And there was a whole new pack of kids there. And I couldn't get into those children's point of view when Homer comes back to the orphanage. And from the moment I began to work with Lhasa, I began to like elements of that compression which up to then, with three previous directors, had been more of a struggle than a pleasure. And is, is this at all reflected in your subsequent writing of novels? 
Well, when you consider that, that um, I wrote my longest novel after most of uh, my screenplays, I would say that may have had a deleterious effect. Um, but uh, I, I, I've always felt pretty good about dialogue, but I think that screenplays have helped me with dialogue. I feel I understand dialogue a little better because of um, working on, on screenplays. But it's not so much the work itself, is that I understand it better because of Lasse Hallstrom, because I learned a lot working with, uh, with Lasse. Um, I've also learned a, a lot working with this young writer-director, Todd Williams, who adapted uh, A Widow for One Year as the film The Door and the Floor by doing just the first third of that novel. Uh, I, I liked working with him so much that we're working together on uh, my adaptation of um, uh, The Fourth Hand. Uh, so we're working together again. And Lasse and I keep trying to find something to work on uh, together again. There's, there's a very small number of people making movies that I, I know and, and that I, uh, I trust and I like working with them. But my day job is, is being a novelist. And I don't imagine that I'm going to write many more screenplays. And I hope I do get to write uh, several more novels. Can I ask one last question before opening this up? I'm, I'm fascinated by the point at which, in your fantastically controlled, plot-driven construction, you people this story with characters. Do you know who the people are who are going to deliver this denouement? I, I assume you must do if you are actually writing the last sentence. When do they get factored into the, the idea of the story? One day you, 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 you've been thinking about characters and a situation and a location, a landscape, and maybe it's been going on for three or four months, and, and one day something gives you the clue. January um, uh, 18th, uh, 2005, I had an appointment with an orthopedic surgeon. Um, I've had a few. Um, I was driving uh, on a snowy road uh, to this doctor's appointment, and a Bob Dylan song was on my CD player. I'd heard it a hundred times, that song, Tangled Up in Blue. I had a job in the great North Woods, working as a cook for a spell, but I never did like it all that much, and one day the axe just fell. That stanza, right? Just that stanza. And I don't know why it jumped out at me. I can't tell you the connection, but I had been thinking for some time about a cook and his son who become fugitives, and something happens. But I heard that song, and by the time I got to my doctor's office, I knew the last sentence of this new novel. Um, he felt that the great adventure of his life was just beginning, as his father must have felt in the throes and dire circumstances of his last night in Twisted River. And there was the title, Last Night in Twisted River. And it was in a 15-minute car ride because of a Bob Dylan song. I had the title, I had the last sentence, and I wrote it on a pad of prescription paper in my orthopedic surgeon's office. Unfortunately, she came into the office while I was doing this, and she thought I was giving myself a prescription. <laughs> so she, what you are you doing? Were. And so I said, no, it's my last sentence. You want to read it? Because it wouldn't change, you see. Now, uh, from the moment I get that, I just see it all. But I see it in reverse. I see it from back to front. And, and I have to unravel it uh, backwards. And, and, and then, as I say, in this case, seven months from there uh, to um, uh, the first sentence uh, of, of the first chapter, that was pretty fast. But I'm still, uh, as I told you, I mean, the, the first sentence still could change, a much less complicated sentence. But like 
most first sentences to most first chapters, it's an accident in progress, right? What you want to have in a first sentence is you want to walk in on someone. You want to turn your head and see something you shouldn't have seen. It's, it, it's just a, a moment, and it, it's just a moment. And it's, um, but I'm, I'm still not 100% about the first sentence. The young Canadian who could not have been more than 15 had hesitated too long. Uh-oh. <laughs> Trouble, right? That's all you need to know, right? It's just, oh, and, and what will this hesitation cost him? A lot, right? So it, it, I, I don't know why the process works that way, but I trust it. I just trust that if I don't rush it, uh, I'll, I'll get there. But the key for me has always been go slow. Just go really slow. Do it again. Do it again. And it, it, it seems to uh, work. It, it works. It seems to work out. For the rest of this new novel, please join us tomorrow when John's very kindly agreed to read some of it. Um, I'm sorry to have taken so long, but I didn't want to stop, and it's my festival. Um, <laughs> uh, we've got some time for questions. Um, we've got, uh, yeah, first one from over there, please. Oh, sorry, I thought you were saying there was somebody there. There's a guy down here who'd really like to ask a question. Is there anybody over there who'd like to ask a question? Yeah, um, back there, second. And then the lady there. Thank you. Um, I was interested in your analysis that uh, something that happens in childhood can, can influence an event later on, can influence the logic of how someone reacts to an event. And I was reading Until I Find You recently. And for me, the deal didn't make sense from an adult point of view. You know, the, the, the father, the, the brother, the sister could have come and found him, but, but didn't. And it didn't kind of, when, when you talk about the childhood thing persisting, does that really explain why that didn't happen? Why, why he didn't come and look for him when the mother had died? I felt that when I was introduced to the brother I didn't know uh, I had, and when um, I learned that um, uh, our father had died some five years before this brother uh, realized uh, that we were um, uh, related, uh, even as wedded as I am to last chapters and to endings and last sentences, as I told you, uh, even I wondered if uh, that novel, Until I Find You, might change as a result, because I was three-quarters of the way through the writing process. I wasn't up to that last chapter when this happened. Um, but, but to my surprise, it only confirmed for me that, that that's how I should end it, as I had ended it. And uh, I think that ending, like a couple of others in a couple other of my novels, um, re reflects a habit, which is the unhappier the novel, um, my tendency is to make the last chapter a little happier. The happier or more comic or more mirthful the novel, the ending is not nice. The ending is harsh. Um, and that part of the process isn't planned. That part of the process seems to be more, uh, to the extent I ever can be, uh, spontaneous more spontaneous. Um, but I felt that the, the test in that novel, for me, as, as its architect, as its writer, was that the character who I wanted to have make the most um, 
memorable and sort of uplifting impression on you at the end of the story was someone you had only heard about from the beginning of the book uh, and who is not what you had expected to find. Um, and I think in my own case, uh, now that I know these, I've spent a lot of time with these two brothers and a sister I, I didn't know I had. Um, and uh, I'm a little surprised to find uh, people in the world who are at all like me. I didn't know there were. <laughs> you know, that's been a pleasure. Um, but what they tell me in their contradictory ways, contradictory because there are three of them and they, and they don't all think alike, um, is that for all the imagining of who my father was, uh, I, I got it wrong. I didn't really understand who he was. I, I, I had not imagined uh, what his, um, uh, either his personality, um, or his um, uh, weaknesses were. Uh, I had not been able to, to guess that. So I, I think that that gave me some uh, confidence to make William. Um, uh, it, what really mattered to me was that William not be capable of taking care of himself, uh, and yet when you first meet him or see him, your initial instinct is, well, this guy's fine. There's nothing wrong with this guy. This guy's just a little eccentric. Um, uh, but, um, but William is where he is and can never get out. I mean, he, he's, he's in a sanatorium for a reason. Um, and... For sure, that was, um, there's no small amount, a small amount of rationalization on my part to that ending, right? A question from over there. Um, I've just finished writing my dissertation about you, and my question was, are you a feminist or a misogynist? And I decided that you weren't really either, so I was just wondering whether you consider yourself to be either or something in between or something totally different. Well, I, I could be a real smart ass and say it depends on the woman. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> but as a novelist, it might be safer or, or to say it depends on the character. Um, Maybe the best answer to that is, is I sometimes think that uh, autobiography in fiction is, is, is very superficially understood when it's understood at all. And that is that it's easy and not very meaningful to identify those minor characters in one's novels who were based on actual people one knew, and so what. Or, the truth is there are lots of characters in lots of novels who are based on 20 people the author knew. One character, right? Uh, th there are lots of qualities in characters in novels that are hugely common and that um, uh, you're not generally writing about one person. You're writing about um, a number of people like that. But I think what is more revealing uh, autobiographically uh, in, 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 in fiction is a character or characters who repeat themselves from novel to novel. And they're not based on anyone you ever knew. In other words, think of how important Hester Melanie and Emma are 
to a peripheral and meanie with the cider house rules and until I find you. And they're the same woman. There is often, not always, but often in my novels, a bigger, sexually aggressive, threatening, um, physically unbeautiful woman who is, looks like the greatest threat to the younger, uh, less mature, uh, less sure of himself, uh, often physically smaller male character. And this character who introduces herself uh, as a threat, as a menace to the main character, turns out to be that character's best, or in some cases, only friend. And the, there's been an awful lot of presuming that I must have known uh, an Emma, uh, a Melanie, uh, or a Hester. But what I know is that I wish I had. What I know, know is that that character may be the most autobiographical character in all of the novels um, because I am drawn to her precisely because I didn't have anyone like that in my life. I never knew anyone like that, and I, I wish I did. I, I wish I had known such a person. We, we only have time for one more question now, but there will be more questions tomorrow. Can I also just ask, if there is anybody who would like to join the BBC World Service Book Club session tomorrow morning to talk specifically about the world according to Garp, they're looking for 20 people to join the book club. If you'd like to join that, please would you um, come and meet Karen Holden, the producer, who will be standing just over there in that doorway afterwards. Um, the last question is, is yours. Hi there. My, my question kind of echoes the last one. Um, I've always thought that you were a feminist, so I, I, I haven't done a dissertation on those. So, um, but uh, one thing, one of the many things I love about your work are your female characters, and uh, you know, I would think more Jenny and Garth than the ones that you mentioned. And I just wanted, you know, to ask, uh, you know, they always seem very complex, very uh, well formed, and how much of that is informed by your uh, own sort of childhood raised? Do you think in a sort of house of women, as you spoke of earlier? Well, I was very close to my grandmother. I grew up with my grandmother because um, uh, my, my mother was a, uh, gone a lot, and um, uh, the father was a, a mystery. And uh, so I was closer to my grandmother and lived with my grandmother. Um, closer to her than I was to my mother. I saw a lot of my mother's uh, sisters, uh, both older than my mother, uh, my aunts. Um, and my grandmother's um, housekeeper was uh, another very, uh, certainly positive woman in, in my sort of early uh, childhood. Until my mother remarried when I was six, um, uh, there were no men around, uh, and I was extremely grateful, remain extremely grateful to my stepfather, not only because he adopted me um, and um, my name was changed and I got his name because I never wanted the name of the guy who nobody would talk about, but that's the name I was born with. I, I didn't want to be named after somebody that no one would tell me anything about. That wasn't any fun. Um, I thought, what is this guy, a serial killer? Um, uh, and why do I have his name? Uh, which was the only thing I knew about him. I was John Wallace Blunt, Jr., so I knew his name. Uh, but I, I was happy to have my name changed. Um, I loved my stepfather. He was uh, uh, the best thing that had happened in uh, my life um, so far, and he became a um, a kind of barrier between myself and my temper and my mother and her temper because we both had, uh, still have, uh, considerable tempers. And my stepfather was, um, he was a referee. I mean, he, he, he got in the way. He ran interference, you know. Um, uh, my mother was a very strong and strong-willed uh, person, um, and, and she's my mother, so I, I have to love her. But um, uh, 
uh, I didn't always, um, and she's not an easy person to, um, uh, to like. Politically, she's easy to like. Socially, she's easy, easy to like. Um, but um, uh, when I would meet people as a child, as a teenager, as a young guy in his 20s and 30s, and people would say to me, after five minutes, five hours, five days, five months, Jesus, you're really an angry person. I always said, you should meet my mother. <laughs> and <laughs> so um, I, I, those influences were positive in some way, less positive in others. But there was no absence in my life, let's say, of um, uh, uh, strong, uh, sharp-tongued, and um, uh, determined, purposeful women around. Um, uh, uh, my grandmother's housekeeper um, lost a leg and wondered uh, why this should interfere with her ability uh, to be a cook. Um, and I remember her saying very distinctly, well, to my knowledge, I never used that leg in my cooking. <laughs> so I, you know, I grew up with these people, you know. Um, and it, it was a, one of the pleasures of meeting so late in my life um, these two brothers and a sister I didn't know I have was it um, they, they seemed very normal um, and that, that reassured me somehow right? maybe that's enough okay. John Irving, yeah. thank you very much indeed thank you thank you okay thank you very much Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.